This is a podcast from the Poetry Society. <laughs> What's wrong with living dangerously in the poetry business, yeah. really? I don't think anyone's going to get killed in the poem, you yeah. know? But I don't even know if anyone was killed during the making of Ben-Hur. Yeah. I'm Morris Reardon, editor of the Poetry Review, and today I'm at Keats' house talking to Paul Muldoon who is currently in the UK for the launch of 1,000 Things Worth Knowing, his 12th collection. Paul, thank you for stopping by for a chat. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I hope so. I'm going to uh, start by testing your memory. Uh-huh. Well, jogging it, maybe. Well, let's see. I can't <laughs> remember what I did yesterday, so this could be a hard one. This is some years ago. I heard you in conversation with the Irish-language poet Nulani Gonul. Nula was explaining quishla, pulse, but also in Irish a term of affection, maquishla, and she was looking for, for an equivalent. And you popped out straight away with heartthrob, hmm? which was bullseye, yeah, brilliant. And the one word in English perhaps which kind of embraces both sides of, of the word quishla. It made me wonder at the time, if the quite extraordinary verbal alertness of, of your poems had anything to do with Irish in the background. Well, that's too big a question, I guess, but could I ask you something just kind of factual? Was there Irish at home when you were a child? There was no Irish at home, but there was Irish in the primary school, a small amount of it, so that when we wanted to go to the bathroom, for example, which we seemed to do quite a lot, we would say, and will Cathogam Gullamach, may I go out. We tended to go to the bathroom before we had assembly, such as it was. And assembly, the roll call, was answered by us in Irish. And the word we gave to indicate that we were present was Anshaw. Anshaw. And in that part of Northern Ireland, frankly, there was a little bit of, I wouldn't want to say a sedition, but uh, something going in that direction associated with the Irish language. As you know, the Irish language is quite politicised Everywhere, in the North in particular, uh, it was politicised. There was a sense that it was associated with the the nationalist uh, slash Republican section of the population, as indeed, alas, it tended to be. So when I went to Queen's University, Belfast, in 1969, I'd studied Irish by that stage at high school or grammar school for seven years, but I also studied it at university, and in fact I was... If anything, this gives you some idea of my English. If anything, my Irish was better than my English. Probably still is, uh, even though I barely speak Irish. And I, I studied Celtic languages and literature, at, supposedly, at uh, university, as well as English. So, yes, I mean, I was brought up on Irish poetry in Irish. The man who taught me um, Irish was a very distinguished uh, song collector, Sean O'Boyle, Sean O'Boyle. And uh, he taught us the great poems of the Gaelic tradition as songs. Mm. So Roisin Du and Una Wan and all the rest of them were sung to us. And it turns out, in fact, that he had us translating in high school. And we were encouraged to send off our translations to the Irish press, a paper that's I think more or less gone now. And it had a column called Ashtruchan, where each week it ran a translation of a 
sometimes a classic Irish poem, sometimes a recent contemporary Irish poem. And we actually sent, as teenagers, mm. we were sending our poems off to be published in the paper, which is great. I mean, he gave us the sense that actually we too could do this. Mm. So you were connected to that kind of Irish song tradition from the outset. Well, yeah. mm. I mean, in a, in a modest way, I mean, I, I would say so. Mm. Uh, then, of course, as it turns out, some of the first poems I wrote, and indeed the first poems I had accepted for publication, were in Irish, as it turns out. On the night, uh, some in English were, were published first for what it's worth, but I was attempting to write in Irish. So to try to, this is a very long-winded answer to your question, it's probably not an answer at all, but I was hoping, I suppose, to be able to write in Irish, and I realised that I just, you know, wasn't really good enough mm. in Irish. I mean, whether or not I'm good enough in English is, is another matter. I think in some sense, I really believe that many writers, it's certainly true of me, write not because they're fluent or have uh, any kind of uh, ability in a language, but for the exact opposite reason difficulty that's how i view it mm. it takes me a long time to write a sentence it takes me forever to write a sentence in any case the irish i think is there mm. some it's always lurking about somewhere in the background uh, along with other things and along with french poetry mm. poetry in latin and of course poetry mm. in english and it started there macaronically in the poems anyway, isn't it? Where you've got Schlimmock and I notice in the new book, a lobster, an Irish lobster. Glumach, yes, mm -hmm. I, I do. The word glumach occurs, in, as you say, in, in one of the poems. You know, one's torn always about whether or not one should gloss these things. And of course, if the word were to, uh, the French version of lobster, if the word langoustine, mm. for example, were to show up in a poem. I know a langoustine is not exactly a lobster, but supposing that word were to show up in a poem, we wouldn't feel any obligation to give a little translation of it anywhere in the, in the body of the book. And I sort of feel, particularly in this era, that, you know, you can sort of go and look it up. Absolutely. And uh, mm -hmm. why not? I mean, if you're going to look up Lorica, if you're going to look up... Uh, Thole, why not look up Gyomach? Mm. One of the glories of this era is that you can easily find out what the word Gyomach means in a way that it was much more difficult 10, certainly 20 years mm. ago. I'm going to bring you back to Ansha. Ansha is the word every Irish schoolboy, school child learns the very first day to say you're here, present, here and now. And of course you have a poem called Ansha, and Ansha turns up again actually in the new book, but it turns up as the tattoo, well, in the poem, on your daughter's ankle. <laughs> and it turns up in a poem called Cuba. Well, it's Cuba too. It's the revisiting of uh, a previous Cuba. I'm going to be cheeky. Does your daughter have Ansha tattooed on her ankle? I fear she does. <laughs> uh, or should I say I'm thrilled to think she does. If they're uh, going to have tattoos, that sounds like the ideal place and the ideal word. Huh? <laughs> well, I think it, if it had stopped there, uh, it would be grand. No, she, she has a few tattoos and, you know, what can I say? Good for her. I love her dearly and 
I love her whether she's tattooed or not. I think the associations that my generation, perhaps your generation, might have had with the tattoo have sort of disappeared. And I see that almost every young woman one runs into, not that I run into too many, <laughs> I hasten to add, has a tattoo. And so, you know, it's a different era. I'm sure a thousand years ago in Ireland, I'm sure many someone had a tattoo and thought mm-hmm. nothing of it. <laughs> but in Cuba too, you're hanging with your daughter in Havana, so it is Cuba as it is here and now. Just to return briefly, I want to satisfy my curiosity a little bit about the old Cuba, a very uh, well-known early poem. The Cuba there is uh, a sort of mythical elsewhere, I suppose, in a way. And often wondered if you were also thinking of the Roman protectress of children in their beds. She was called Cuba. I, I wasn't no. uh, thinking of that at all. Mm. I hadn't realized that there was uh, such a, a goddess, Cuba. Really, I would have been praying to her years ago. (laughs) You know, the Cuba, I mean, in some sense is a mythical place. Perhaps all places are invented in some way. But it was actually all too real a place Mm. um, at the time. Uh, That particular poem refers to the Cuban Missile Crisis, when, of course, um, we thought that we were all for the, the chop and that we were all going to to perish in a great atomic or nuclear, I'm not sure which, (laughs) explosion. And we we would all be moving on rapidly. We would be dust all too quickly. It's the reality, I suppose, Mm. in a strange way, that's kind of pressing in Mm. on on this little um, parish in uh, County Armagh that the first Cuba is dealing with. And then I found myself having a great trip with my daughter to Cuba a couple of years ago. So the, the poem is a record to some extent of yeah. some of the some of the things we got up to. I was struck by the fact that it was a revisiting of the material, I suppose, in some sense. Oh, I think that's right. Mm. And I mean, at some level, of course, as you know, one does not want to be going back. Mm. Uh, one wants to be push, pushing forward. But, you know, after a while... <laughs> particularly as one enters one's dotage, you know, it's almost inevitable that one goes back and starts thinking about the stuff that happened uh, back in when one was a kid and also connected with one's own mm-hmm. children. And there are a few other references that in that poem to other poems that I wrote, you know, 30 or whatever, 40 years ago. Now, as I say, one doesn't want to be going back there, but, you know, the odd glancing I mean, it's inevitable that there be the odd glancing, uh, glance back and glancing forward, I suppose. As I say, I hope that I can keep on pushing the envelope a little bit for another while, but I'm sure some of it, uh, you know, one goes back and looks at the stamp collection too. Well, I think you go back, but you make it very different as well. The last poem in the book, actually, Dirty Data, that struck me as a sort of uh, revisiting of a lot of uh, material that, I don't know, you might have used in Yarrow, for example. But in this case, well, Ben-Hur comes in in a very big way. And can I just ask you a factual question? Was that a picture you went to see as a child or not? As no. often as possible. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm sure I, w- I, w- I was there in 1959 when it came out. Yeah. And 
I loved Ben-Hur and I continue to love Ben-Hur. I know it's not necessarily the greatest movie ever made, Mm -hmm. but there are a couple of tremendous sequences in it. I mean, that are just extraordinary pieces of filmmaking in their scope, if nothing else, and in in an era when Mm. really we didn't have the the producers and the directors, and there were several involved, you know, didn't have the access to uh, all the jiggery-pokery that they have nowadays. I mean, the making of Ben-Hur as a work of art, why don't we call it that? What went into it was quite remarkable in terms of quote-unquote authenticity. I mean, the amount of leather they used, the amount mm-hmm. of metal they used to make weapons and all the rest. It was quite remarkable. Mm-hmm. So, in this case... Well, it becomes quite entangled, doesn't it, with Northern Irish politics, with imperialism generally and small nations. And it does. I mean, it, I think it's fair to say that the title of this book, 1,000 Things Worth Knowing, which you mentioned earlier, perhaps is a pointer to the fact that Many of the poems in it are kind of loaded and perhaps in some cases overloaded with factoids. You know, I suppose ordinarily one is trying to do as little as possible in a poem. One is trying to cut down on the range of things that might be happening in a poem, cutting stuff out. Just with these poems, for some reason, I have no idea why, I wanted to kind of bring bring everything in or mm. allow everything in, mm. not to be too concerned about things pressing in. I mean, there are two very different ways of doing business. I mean, in a word or two, in Irish literary terms, it's the difference between Beckett and Joyce. Beckett keeping it all out Mm. and Joyce, I mean, his method of composition, as you know, was, you know, every idea, too many of them perhaps, was allowed for and sort of welcomed into the Mm. fold, into the sentence. And it is, it's not without its dangers, but you know what? (laughs) <laughs> What's wrong with living dangerously in the poetry business, yeah. really? I mean, it's. I believe that, you know, one should live somewhat dangerously. Yeah. I mean, it's, well, a, it's a safe enough area. I don't think anyone's <laughs> going to get killed in the poem, you yeah. know? No one is going to lose. Well, I don't even know if anyone was killed during the making of Ben-Hur, yeah. actually. <laughs> yeah. And no one is certainly going to get killed during the making of this poem. As you say... It goes out in a whole range of directions. It's all over the place in a certain sense. Mm. Part of the plan, I hope, was, or as it came to me, was that there might be a connection between Governor Lou Wallace, who yeah, was the, uh, the author of the, author of the, the novel, novel. Mm. Ben-Hur, who, of course, had been a general during mm. the Civil War in the States and then went out to become uh, the governor out there in New Mexico. Mm. And he wrote... Ben-Hur, A Story of the Christ, to give it its full Mm. title, in the governor's palace there in Santa Fe. And I became sort of fascinated, you know, fascinated, maybe it's too much, but interested in the idea of his, in a way, being a model for the the Roman Tribune Tribune. Messala, played by uh, our local hero, Stephen Boyd, a Belfast fella. You know, that there was some, some... dynamic between Lou Wallace and the locals Mm. and between the Romans and the Jews Mm. in uh, Jerusalem and then between ourselves and, you know, and the uh, 
what would one say, the local Romans. That's right. It gets tangled up with it's things. It's a tangle. Mm. Yeah, it's a, it really is. Wonderfully, wonderfully, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, that branching out, that ramifying and so on is the part of the energy of, of the writing. I think particularly in that poem, well, in all the poems, but uh, the book opens with Cuthbert and the Otters, which is a... Uh, Analogy, I guess, for Seamus Heaney. Mm -hmm. And again, that is a poem that sort of proliferates in, in different directions. But it's got a kind of here and now to it too, doesn't it? It's got a kind of funereal pace, a sense of, I don't know, almost being a pallbearer. Mm -hmm. Especially with that kind of line that works almost like a refrain. I cannot hold the thought of Seamus Heaney dead. Which is mm -hmm. Very it is, iambic, it's very iambic, it? that's yeah. right, you're mm. right, that's right, and it does, it's a kind of toll, I suppose the poem in a way, well, like many many of these poems, most of them, perhaps all of them in some ways, I didn't choose to write it, I prefer not to have to have had to write it, obviously, but the way I think of it myself as a reader now is that it represents a kind of throwing up of almost the poem becomes a kind of rampart against the fact of Seamus Heaney being dead. I don't know if rampart's quite the word. I honestly don't know what the word is. Sort of like a shelter against mm. the fact. It's almost throwing up a wall against something. Yes. A staving off. I, I think that's a term I use in the, in the body of the poem. Mm. And as you suggest, I mean, it's it's a poem that's loaded. It's loaded with uh, stuff. I, and I think at some level is a kind of a, a cry against the thought and, uh, of Seamus Heaney passing on. And um, I suppose, you know, some sort of consolation and in, in vague consolation in having all this stuff uh, not in his place, but just to put off the thought, mm -hmm. I suppose. I'm not ex expressing it very well because I <coughs> honestly don't know what it is. Per perhaps as an aspect of the lament of the queener, I oh, think. Oh, I think yes. it does, yeah. yes. I'm mm. I, I would hope, mm. yes, it probably does, mm. yes. As, as we are on a kind of a elegiac note, I thought I might ask you to read another elegy in the book, which is a dent. I guess you you can introduce it yourself and tell us who it's about and so on. Well, it's dedicated to Michael Allen in memory of Michael Allen, who, like Seamus Heaney, was a teacher of mine in uh, Queen's University, Belfast. And in fact, Seamus Heaney refers to him somewhere along the way as the teacher over my shoulder. Michael Allen was uh, an extraordinary reader of poetry who helped many of us, you know, edit our poems, basically, as we were writing them when we were, you know, in the 19, late 1960s into the early 70s. He was a great, great man to have around. And one of the wonderful things about him was that, you know, he would say to you, look, the third line of your poem, it's absolute rubbish. <laughs> it's really problematic. You've got to do something about that. And, you know, one knew that one had to listen to him when he said that. And I, I refer to his red pencil in the course of the poem. There are a couple of words in the next line, though, that are slightly uncommon. I think the word grip, G-R-A-I-P in this case, being the kind of fork affair that one uses in gardening uh, or clearing out cattle manure. And cattle manure is something you'd find in a group, mm. which is the channel behind 
where the cattle stand in a bar. There's a punan group, though, I guess, is there? <laughs> you know, that's very good. I'm not sure. <laughs> you know, that's one of those ones I'm not sure if I even was conscious of it, which, of course, is the case often. One hopes to be conscious. You know, I don't remember much about the poems, you know, afterwards. Mm. But I see what you're getting at, because Michael Allen and Seamus Heaney and myself, among others, were in members of the so-called Belfast group. Mm. Not that we went around thinking of ourselves as such. Nobody ever used that term, you know, at the time. At least I don't think they did. Though it was a spin-off of the famous London group that had been run by uh, Philip Hobsbawm and and transferred to Belfast. Yeah, very good. A grape above the group. That would make sense. Mm. (laughs) Anyway, what else? So far too much to say about it. I refer to the fact that in some places in Ireland, there was a feeling that cattle spoke in the Christmas season at Yule. Oh, yes. So anyway, a dent in memory of Michael Allen. The height of one stall at odds with the next in your grandfather's bar, where cattle allowed themselves to speak only at Yule, gave but little sense of why you taught us to admire the capacity of a three-legged stool to take pretty much everything in its stride. Even the card-carrying crow, who let out a war whoop, now your red pencil, was poised above my calf-hide manuscript like a grape above a group. The depth of a dent in the flank of your grandfather's cow, from his having leaned his brow against it morning and night for twenty years of milking by hand, gave but little sense of how distant is the land on which you had us set our sights. Smashing. Smashing. <laughs> Thank you, Paul. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Poetry Society podcast. To find out more about the Poetry Society and how you can become involved, visit www.poetrysociety.org.uk.